1: What's going on, everybody? R.J. Ochoa here from SBNations, You know me, of course, from BTB, from the Ocho, and from right here on the 750. We have a brand new episode available for you today. Myself, two-time Super Bowl champion Tony Casillas, and special guest from ESPN, Ed Werder. You might know Ed, of course, from the Doomsday podcast that he does with Matt Mosley. Their latest episode had Troy Aikman as a guest, so you want to go listen to that wherever you get your podcast. You can, of course, subscribe to the Blog and the Boys podcast feed on all major podcast platforms, please do, uh, so you don't miss a single episode from any of our wonderful shows. Uh, Tony and I, we got into a lot with Ed. We talked, you know, talked Dallas Cowboys as a whole, Jerry Jones, Jimmy Johnson, Dak Prescott. It's really just kind of uh, an overall collective discussion on on all things Dallas Cowboys, and we hope that you enjoy it. And we know that there is a lot going on in our world right now, in the United States of America, and we hope that talking about the Dallas Cowboys brings you joy in some way, shape, or So without further ado, let's go ahead and get to it. ESPN's Ed Werder next on The 750. We are now pleased to be joined by the one, the only, the legendary. You know him, you read him every day. You likely have his Twitter feed tattooed on the front of your brain. From ESPN co-host of the Doomsday Podcast, one and only Ed Werder joining The 750. Ed, happy Tuesday to you. Well, same to both of you.
2: Glad to uh, be invited and have the opportunity to uh, talk some football with you guys.
3: Well, it's glad to have you on, Ed, and I know you and I have a lot in common. Um, obviously, I have not been a world-renowned journalist for decades, but both of us like Peloton, and both of us like to play golf. So how about yeah. those two things we have in common that we'd like and to I do? I
2: believe that I finished second to you in both of those categories.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was telling RJ, just to preface, that uh, you know we become you know friends, and I'm go back to the my days in Dallas or used to be the beat rider there and so there was this relationship and as we got you know moved on played a lot of golf and so I, I think that that's the the great part about it but uh, hey again thanks for joining us uh, I guess really where we want to start and I really didn't want to get into this because uh, it is a, a sense of the subject and what's going on in our world today and I, I just want to touch on it um, and I, you've covered sports for a long time and what we're seeing now, you know, obviously the pandemic of the coronavirus and now we're having the pandemic of what's going on now. I always, I tell people this, that my perspective is a little different because I played in, in the sports world where it was mixed, a mixed bag of ethnic backgrounds, but your, your perspective, what's going on and how can, I guess, sports be a resolved in this whole thing. And, and where do you, what do you see the role being?
2: Well, as it you know pertains to the pandemic, I think we've already witnessed um, that it, it can provide sports can provide a necessary distraction from something that is a significant threat to uh, you know the lives of many people in our country. Uh, when the pandemic was at its height and was attracting all the headlines, which was until about I don't know a week ago, uh, you know the NFL proceeded to conduct its normal off-season in terms of, you know, free agent signings, the draft, uh, you know, we created record ratings uh, at ESPN for the coverage of the draft because people needed a diversion. They wanted to be able to get away from uh, all of the bad news that came with the pandemic. And I think in an even greater way, sports is a, is a perfect example of what can be accomplished um, if you don't judge people on the basis of anything but the quality of their character, um, you know I think you you posted something that made that point in terms of you know you're in a locker room you're in a huddle you're on a football field and you're fighting and you're bleeding for the person next to you regardless of the color of the skin or or of their skin or their background. So in that way, I think in one regard it it can be you know a diversion and a and a way to heal the public, and in another way, a more specific way, it's a great example of what can be accomplished if people put everything else, all their prejudices aside, and, you know, strive for a single purpose.
1: Ed, when was the last time you felt that there were this many, and I think maybe this focuses more on the pandemic side of things, um, this many questions about, I mean, the season as a whole, obviously, but just in general, you know, there's things like what's going to happen with training camp, how's all this going to work, etc. I mean, we're already in the month of June, and granted, this is typically the slowest month of of the NFL calendar, but it it feels like, you know, things are so close, um, yet there is so much unknown.
2: Well, as we record this, the NFL is exactly 100 days from the season opener in which the Houston Texans are going to play the defending Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs, at Arrowhead Stadium. And while the NFL has, you know, created a schedule uh, and said it is proceeding as if the regular season will be played on time and in full, they've also, you know, created some alternative possibilities should that not uh, be allowed to happen. And we still don't know, as you're, as you're suggesting, we're so close three months from the start of the season, there's been no real offseason. Um, and so that's the first thing that has to get resolved is how are the players going to, you know, be physically fit enough to play the season? How are they going to, uh, are they going to be allowed to have any kind of training camp whatsoever? Are we going to have, are there going to be fans in the stands? Uh, I, there's a million things that need to be resolved, but I think the NFL has the good fortune now of having set the course that they already did. And that now they can kind of sit back and see what happens with these other sports as they try to resume, right, they get to watch uh, the NBA. They get to watch the NHL, Major League Baseball, uh, and see how they do it, how they proceed, what their initial issues are, uh, how they react to the inevitability, it seems, that somebody or many somebody's will test positive uh, for, for COVID-19. And how, are they, how can they isolate that person from the others? And, you know, what do you do if Patrick Mahomes is test positive the day before a game? Um, so, so there are a lot of things that that have to be resolved. But I think the NFL, uh, which is our primary focus, has the advantage now of being able to see what the challenges are that are encountered by these other sports as they uh, attempt to re- return not to normal, but uh, re- return to com- uh, competition at the very least.
3: And and you said it. You said it earlier about you know sports is a great co- po- coping mechanism. It's you know gives you an outlet, but one thing you mentioned, and I was thinking about that this, this morning before we were going to have you on our show, is that the off-season workouts, because this is unknown, and there's so many unknown things, but I do know this as far as guys working out and being accountable. I know a lot of guys work out by their own, but to actually be together in a building and where there's some structure, those there's guys that will kind of stray away and maybe not be as motivated. So when I look at that, that to me is going to be the biggest question. How these guys come in, these virtual OTAs, all these different workouts. To me, that's really going to be hard to gauge going into the season.
2: Well, and there's even a lot of different parts to that. The fact that there's been no offseason and they've only had virtual, uh, you know, training sessions and uh, especially hard for, you know, the new head coaches in the NFL. Uh, even a guy like Mike McCarthy, as experienced as he is, having coached in Green Bay for 13 years and having incredible success, nine nine years in the playoffs, a Super Bowl win, he comes to the Cowboys, one of the most talented teams in football, and, and he can do all he wants in terms of these Zoom sessions. But it's different until you see these guys for yourself on the field and implement your systems and see how you know they adapt to what you want them to do and fine-tuning all of that. And then there's the part you talked about, which is, you know, the physical fitness component of it. I mean, yeah, these guys are working out on their own, but I, I think Jimmy Johnson always used to say, you know, if, if guys could force themselves to do what they are able to do when they're when they're told and coached to do it, there wouldn't be a need for coaches. There's a reason there's a strength and conditioning coach and assistants, right? They're out there pushing guys to uh, achieve what they feel is necessary before these players go to training camp. And then there's the whole injury risk part of it, which I assume the players union will be involved heavily in trying to structure whatever there is going into training camp and placing even further limits on what the players are allowed to do in training camp so that they aren't injured knowing that they're not as physically prepared as they normally would be. That's interesting because the the thing's already
3: been amended as far as the collective bargaining agreement, what they, you know, they did uh, not this one, but the prior to that, making changes and practices and everything. Now, I mean, it seems to me maybe they're going to try to mend what this short pandemic type of preseason and season is going to be like.
2: Yeah, I, I think they will. I don't think they have any choice. And, I mean, what they do now, uh, even when it's, you know, normal, is far from what you guys used to endure. I mean, we don't see Tony Casillas in a – you know, a three-point stance lined up against Nate Newton with Emmitt Smith getting the football, you know, in the Oklahoma drill. That doesn't even happen anymore. These guys don't even practice more than three days. They can't have two-a-days uh, every day like you guys used to have. Uh, it was really up to the coach's discretion at, at, back in, the, in those days, in the 90s. And uh, that's no longer the case. So, uh, yeah, how do they modify this and still create an opportunity for the players to be ready to actually play in a game without unnecessarily exposing them to injuries that are likely to occur because they're not at the same le- level of readiness physically as they normally would be at this point in the season.
1: Ed, there have been a lot of questions asked uh, over the last couple of months, and I think we're still all searching for a lot of answers. And one I'm sure you've thought of um, at some point is, and you know, maybe there isn't an answer right now, but how do you see – um football being covered. I mean, you know, there's so many credentials the Cowboys hand out at training camp. I mean, the Cowboys press box is massive and um, uh, you know, locker room scrums can can be, you know, heavy and super thick. Um, I mean, how 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 can you possibly envision that going considering that is a big part of of the way so many people consume NFL content and, and material altogether.
2: Well, I I think that we will be a uh a low level priority, unfortunately. Sure. Um, And I think that some teams that don't really encourage a lot of media interaction with their players and their coaches um, will probably implement systems that further push those people, the media, away from the team. I think we saw, you know, before the pandemic, before the, the players started testing positive in the NBA, some of the precautions that were, you know, everybody's six feet apart. Players right. the podium, you're not in the locker room interacting with them. Um, so so I don't know what they're going to do. I, I assume the first priority when it comes to the media will be, you know, the television cameras and the announcers for the actual broadcast of the game itself. And then any kind of national or local reporting beyond that will be a secondary um, priority, but again, I don't. I don't think they're that worried about uh, that component of it. I don't think they're going to spend a lot of time agonizing over how do we make sure Ed Werder can be uh, <laughs> Jack Prescott. You know, when the game's over, they might. Jerry might be concerned about what's going to happen to his media audience after games. Right. Uh, uh, but I, I say that you know, jokingly. Yeah, that may be after, a good thing for Jerry. Yeah yeah I don't I, you know he, he's he's gonna be forced not to have his book <laughs> at evaluations of the coaching performance and the players. but I, I don't know a lot of that needs to be resolved. I just don't think it's going to anytime soon be what it was before all this started. So uh, I think that'll be very detrimental in terms of the media's ability to provide you know information and give the, uh, the public and the fans a real sense of what's going on with on with their teams. Uh, The teams will now be even more able to control the situation um, in terms of the coverage of their teams. And they already do, which is significantly different than it's ever been because they have their own reporters, they have their own TV, you know, in-house. And obviously they have some, if not actual limitations, there are some presumed limitations about what they can and can't report and how they go about doing that job. It's different than uh, a public entity might cover a team. So uh, before we get into the franchise quarterback
3: questions, Dak Prescott, I wanted to give you three names, and I wanted you to give me a description of these three quarterbacks. I mean, they, two of them have already signed big deals. Uh, so let's start with Jared Goff, and uh, just give me a description and your thoughts on him, real quick. If you if you had to write just a little tag on him,
2: well, I think the first thing you would say about uh, him is that he was the number one overall. Picking in the 2016 draft class, uh, he's to some degree justified that investment um, by getting the Rams to the Super Bowl. So he's had some postseason success. Um, he hasn't really been able to sustain it over multiple seasons, and I, he seems to me, based on what we've seen and what I've heard from you know coaches, defensive coordinators in the NFL who've gone against the Rams. He's a guy who's not a drop back passer. He's a play action passer. He's a guy who's really dependent on the running game to create opportunities for him to execute in the passing game. And I think the Rams have pres- provided him a great platform over the course of, you know, ever since they, you know, fired Jeff Fisher, obviously. Uh, and moved on to Sean McVay. They've they've created a great platform for him to have success. They've accumulated a lot of talent on offense, um, but they've also spent a lot of money, and they can they haven't been able to keep their team their Super Bowl team together. And so I think it becomes more difficult now for Jared Goff to demonstrate that he's a franchise quarterback capable of carrying a team, because I don't think that's what he's had to do to this point.
3: Number two, Carson Wentz.
2: Well, I, I was one of the first people to, uh, I mean, number number two pick in his draft, so mm-hmm. everybody again, thought he was going to be enormously successful. And I was really, I think, among the first national media people to say, hey, I think this guy's going to be a top five quarterback in the NFL very early in his career, and he seemed to be headed in that direction um, in his first year as a starter, but then got suffered you know that injury to his knee, uh, obviously, he's been very limited in terms of what he's been able to do in the postseason for a team that's been in the postseason almost every year that he's been in the league. But he's only taken, what, four four snaps uh, in a postseason or thrown right. four passes in the yeah. postseason? How much? Uh, so even though he has a Super Bowl ring and the, and he was a part of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl, he didn't play in that postseason. So. He only gets kind of partial credit for helping the Eagles win a Super Bowl, but he deserves some credit. He did win a lot of their games that that allowed them to get in that position. All right, then
3: the last one, last but not least, a guy that's waiting to get paid, Dak Prescott.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's exceeded, I think, every expectation uh, there ever was for him. and it's, it's interesting to me, Tony, that in the Jerry Jones era, the Cowboys have had you know, a starting quarterback from across the spectrum. They had Troy Aikman drafted first overall. They have a Tony Romo drafted. He wasn't drafted at all. And Dak Prescott's the only one that they've been unable to sign to a long-term contract, and so he's the first to be franchise tagged. Uh, And he has now an enormous amount of leverage because he's played out his contract, and they don't have really another option. Um, And everything they've said in terms of the rhetoric uh, is that they believe that he's the franchise quarter? I know a lot of the fans don't support this idea, but I think he's 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 accomplished things as a passer that I know I didn't ex- didn't expect him to ac- accomplish. I mean, early in his career, the first three years, he won a lot of games. We saw this unique dynamic player who could run, who could throw on occasion, but last year. You know, Kellen Moore calling plays in the NFL for the first time in his in his career coaching career. Dak Prescott in just his fourth season. Uh, you know, comes within a yard of breaking Tony Romo's single mm-hmm. season passing record. That's unfathomable to me. I never thought he would be that kind of uh, statistically proficient passer. So I think he's done everything you can do, and he's won. And I don't quite understand why people don't believe he's a franchise quarterback.
1: Ed, when you you look at Dak and uh, Bill Barnwell, did a big deep dive yeah. on on everything uh, over sure. at ASPN.com on Monday. Um, what what do you think is the most fair criticism? Because there there are a lot of absurd ones and a lot of Twitter ones. Uh, which one holds the most merit to you?
2: Well, I think the uh, you know he's obviously won a lot of games. In fact, since he's come into the league in twenty sixteen, only Tom Brady had, with the Patriots has won more games than Dak Prescott has with the Cowboys over the last four years. So I think that the fairest criticism of Dak, if you really scrutinize what he's done is he hasn't won consistently against good teams and the Cowboys haven't won consistently against good teams uh, as a part of that. And uh, what were they one in six last year mm-hmm. against teams that, that had winning records and you know, if, if you can't beat teams that have winning records, then you're not a very good team. And to me, they they've totally taken advantage of playing. Well, they haven't totally taken advantage. There's <laughs> another criticism. They, they played in a horrible division. There's right. only two good teams in the division, and they're one of them. And last year they could have gone eight and eight and won the division, and they didn't beat the right team late in the season. They beat the Redskins instead of beating the Eagles, and so eight and eight would have gotten them into the playoffs had they beaten the right teams. And they failed when eight and eight was the only criteria for them to make it to the playoffs. So to me, that's the question about Dak is, is, is he going to elevate his performance uh, as his career moves forward and be able to beat good football teams? Because that's the one thing we really haven't seen
4: yet. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity V-A-N-29.com.
1: So, Ed, a question I always have is there are some people that subscribe to the notion that Dak is a great quarterback. I think Tony and I are both two of those people, and you're obviously one of them as well. And there are, I feel like you can go around in a circle with different arguments. And, you know, to your point, the Cowboys have had all the success in in the regular season. They have one of the best offensive lines in NFL. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Where does the blame ultimately fall? because if all these things you know, exist and exist in harmony and in parallel, what, what is what is the reason? You know, if if they're if all if they're so great and they're so wonderful, why why then no postseason success, at least in recent history?
2: Well, I, I think obviously, coaching is a huge part uh, of the equation. Everybody wants to blame the quarterback for failing, but I, I think the management of the team, And, uh, you know, making the right decisions uh, in terms of uh, game management is a big part of the equation, too. And, you know, I mean, Jason Garrett coached this team for almost an entire decade. And by measure of playoff appearances, it was the most futile decade in the history, in the six decade history of the Cowboys. They made the playoffs the fewest times over a 10 year period ever. Three. And he had Tony Romo and he had Dak Prescott as his quarterback. So to me, it comes becomes at a certain point hard to blame the quarterback, even though that's where most of the blame generally goes. And to some degree, I placed it there a, a bit ago, um, although I was talking more specifically about his individual performance against good teams. This team has has just not uh, met its potential in my mind. And I think a lot of that uh, has been the Jason Garrett, uh, and and his you know way of holding people accountable, uh, the decisions that he's made in games has been, you know, really questionable from start to finish. You know, there were some ridiculous decisions that he made early in his career, and Jerry Jones was always saying how you know he's going to learn from this. You know, we're going to benefit if we are patient. Uh, you know, uh, his game experience will get better, his his decision-making will get better, and that didn't really happen. I mean, there's a number of games you can look at last year where that didn't happen, namely the Minnesota Vikings game that they lost here. Uh, So I I think the the quarterback relies a lot on the coach to create the right mindset, to to make the right decisions, to manage the team and the game in the right way, and I don't think that happened in Dallas as often as it should over the last 10 years.
3: And, Ed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me there's probably – a little bit more criticism for Dallas considering, you know, the organization and everything that comes along with it to criticize the quarterback more for, because I heard you, you said earlier it's a team and not the individual, but we know we judge a quarterback by his individual performance and not more or less what the team does for him. Is that fair for Dak Prescott or is it evaluated differently just because it's the Cowboys and, and, the organization. I mean, is that a fair assessment?
2: Well, I think what you, you know, and I, I was just, as soon as you said organization, I thought, you know what, maybe I was, I gave too much blame to Jason Garrett because he works in a very unique environment here in Dallas. It's, there's not really another team like this one. There's not another team where the owner serves as the general manager and that he uses that to allow him to be involved in either coaching the team or sending messages or, you know, interacting with the media after games in a way that is very uncommon in the NFL. And in my mind often undercuts the credibility and power of the head coach in the locker room. Like, I think that, and you tell me you, you, this is your experience. I think the players have to be accountable to the head coach.
3: Well, and absolutely. That's without that's a that's doubt. But often I think quarterback, though, it's The into. quarterback though, it, is is just a, a guy that's on an island and expect these expectations and really put up these numbers and I guess I'm really referring to people that you know on social media which is toxic at times when it comes to saying things about quarterbacks and just the analogy of quarterbacks it's more like individually weighted and not more the team and and I think it's a collective deal and you're right I think it's a collective environment of the Cowboys just the way the organization is ran and so maybe you don't get a spare assessment and the expectation is more and maybe that's the Cowboys reluctancy to not go ahead and pay Dak Prescott the long-term contract or what he wants and just come to a happy medium
2: well you know it's hard to I keep seeing these headlines like you mentioned on the Bill Barnwell article yesterday RJ that uh, the Cowboys need to just pay Dak well they've tried to pay Dak like, it's not like they're hesitant to pay the guy. They, you know, last year at training camp, they they say they made an offer that would have paid him as one of the top five quarterbacks in the entire league when I don't think anybody thought he was a top five quarterback in the NFL. And now they argue we've, we've offered him a deal that would make him the highest paid player in the history of the game. And he won't take that even though nobody really thinks he's the best quarterback in football, let alone... Deserving of being the highest paid player in the game. But it's not about that. He's created this opportunity for himself because of the way he's played and because he's been willing to bet on himself and play out his contract. I I can't, I don't remember the last time we saw a, a prominent NFL quarterback, you know, who's relatively early in his career, play out his deal and put himself in the position where he has the kind of leverage that that Dak Prescott has created for himself now, but I don't think it's right to say the Cowboys won't pay him. And the other part of it is we really don't know what it is he wants. Uh, other than I, my understanding is the point of contention is the number of years of the deal that Dak wants four years so that he can have an opportunity when all this new television money comes into the NFL. Presume, we're presuming that now given – Uh, the circumstances that we're in with this, the pandemic and the detrimental effect that's going to have on the NFL and its financial situations. Um, But, uh, you know, he's created this unbelievable leverage for himself. uh, And he wants a four-year, so he gets another opportunity in the prime of his career to be a free agent again. And the Cowboys want a five- or a six-year deal because that's what they've always done so they can spread uh, the cap hit over a number of years. Like Amari Cooper is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. They just signed him to a five-year deal. Um, and he took you know, less money from the Cowboys than the Redskins offered him in that brief time he was a free agent. The Cowboys structured the contract so that while he's, it's a five-year, $100 million deal, the first year he only counts $12 million against the cap. The other yeah. year he counts $20 million. That's what they want to do with Dak Prescott, and that's why they want five years. Plus, they want control of the player, uh, obviously, for as, as long a time as they can get because they believe in the player.
1: Ed, uh, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think pay Dak has become a slogan for – um, it just in, in terms of my experience, give Dak what he wants on his terms, right? And obviously, the contract length is you know seemingly the biggest uh level of disruption there. I think if, what, what I don't say bugs me, but people seem to act like this is an extremely unique case for the Cowboys, right? Like a, a disagreement on a particular issue with a, a player of note. Um, when last year, Demarcus Lawrence you know threatened to not get shoulder surgery and kind of expedited his time frame, right? Didn't have to go all the way July 15th, because of that. Zeke Elliott, in a different way, held out and kind of expedited his clock. And so To me, you know, this is sort of par for the course to go back to our discussion about golf um, in that the Cowboys, you know, sort of put off paying, you know, big-time contracts until they absolutely have to, which is why I think we all think they're probably going to blink on July 15th, or at least if they do, it would be then. Um, Do you think that this is like that? I mean, because I I think that people forget about that. They focus just on the quarterback of it all, the DAC of it all, and and all the argument that comes with that.
2: Well, I think there are people who would... Uh, you know, like Joe Banner, who I worked with at ESPN, mm-hmm. former general manager with the Eagles and with the, the Cleveland Browns. You know, his argument has always been that the Cowboys uh, mishandle these negotiations because they don't do contracts early enough um, to to avoid these situations where the right. players use the franchise tag and the leverage that comes with that uh, to get what they want. And it's a, a higher number than it would have been had they done it earlier. That being said, in and I, and this is it to me, uh, contradicts what you were saying. This, to me, is a unique situation because it's the first time they haven't been able to get a long-term deal with their starting quarterback. Sure, first time in the history of the franchise, as often as they've used the franchise tag, they've never had to use it on their quarterback. Uh, and so that makes it different, and that makes it historic. And that brings a lot more attention to the negotiation. That being said, you can criticize them all you want for not getting this deal done earlier, but the reality is, by rule, they couldn't do anything until after he completed his third year, which meant after last after the 2019-2018 uh, offseason. So going into camp last year, and they tried at that time to get that done. You know, they went into camp. I remember Stephen Jones saying, "Hey, our priority is getting deals done with Dak and Amari and Zeke." And the only one they got done was Zeke. And they rewarded the guy who held out (laughs) rather than the two guys who did it the right way and reported to camp and were total professionals and handled their jobs the right way. They did it out of order and that worked to their detriment as well.
3: Imagine the Cowboys or any NFL franchise not doing things the conventional way. Um, (laughs) Hey, Ed, I I got one more about uh, Dak. Do you see him taking the franchise tag and, and betting down on himself and you know, I guess the Cowboys the following year can franchise him again. Uh, but three years from now, the 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 salary cap escalates. And I was reading in that Bill Barnwell article, uh, speculation it could be $56 million for a quarterback uh, in the National Football League. Do you think that'd be something that he would be willing to do as a bet on himself and, and take the franchise check, excuse me, the tag and play out the, the next season?
2: Well, I would have to say... Um, that he's already demonstrated a willingness to do that. Uh, This is a guy who's started 64 games, every game since he was drafted. Even though he wasn't drafted to be a starter, he was drafted to be a developmental quarterback. Circumstances caused him to start from the week one of his rookie season, and he's been there. And you talk about how do you characterize this guy? I mean, durability. The guy's played every week. He has started every game, all 64 games. And last year, he did it. You know, making two million dollars and risking everything. So if he's willing to play uh, in the NFL as a starting quarterback and start every week when he's only making two million dollars, I think he's more than willing to do that when it's thirty-one point five million dollars. And to RJ's question, which I guess I didn't answer in my in my final <laughs> thought a minute ago, I do think that ultimately the Cowboys are going to have to relent and and reach a compromise. And in all likelihood, I think Dak will sign. Uh, uh, a deal before the July 15th deadline. Uh, and I think it really gets interesting around July 10th. I think July 10th, that will be a long week. Uh, I think needless to say, um, you know,
1: in terms of this story, um, I guess my last point on the DAG thing is, you know, and I, I know you're not necessarily in the interest of, you know, placing blame or, or grading things like that, but, um, you know the Demarcus Lawrence situation, the Zeke Light situation. There's a lot of of examples. I think that people maybe are frustrated or at least bewildered how the Cowboys haven't learned from that. To your point about what Joe Banner's thoughts and take on this is. You know, uh, time after time, you know, the inability to forecast the market has, you know, bit them. And I think that, you know, when it comes to quarterback contracts, we all understand that's obviously uh, the biggest type of contract a team can hand out. I, I think, I mean, what are your thoughts, I guess, on the Cowboys not being able to adjust to that and to understand if we get this deal done early, whatever the deal may be, whoever it is, that we'll end up paying a lot less in the long run?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that, but in – as it applies to Dak, they've been trying to do this deal for, you know, over sure. a year. Now, I again, I think they hurt themselves um, when they did when they rewarded Zeke Elliott and did something they swore they would not do, which is make him the highest paid running back in football, uh, a position that's been greatly devalued in the NFL. And you're rewarding a guy for not working, for not honoring his deal. And I think the their motivation in doing that was simple. I think it was a Jason Garrett had been put on notice that he had to win last year. He had to get to a championship game. He had to take the next step. And his argument was, how can I possibly have a fair chance to achieve these expectations if I don't have my best player? And so the Cowboys caved the week of the season opener to provide mm-hmm. you know, a, a walking dead coach his best player. And it didn't work out. And now they put themselves in a bad position relative to their quarterback being done. Uh, but I, I don't. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's an easy thing to do, when you need cooperation from the players. Like, okay, so now they did Jalen Smith early, and they and and who else? Did they did somebody else early. They uh, did
1: Lyle Collins last Lyle year. Lyle Collins
2: early, and now people are criticizing because they did those guys early and they didn't take care of their quarterback. Well, I mean, you can't have it both ways.
3: Yeah, there's not enough money and you know, the logistics and everything. Uh,
2: I, I do think they've always managed the cap in a way that's allowed them to put the best possible team on the field. And that generally they've had a lot of talent on the field. I, I mean, there aren't very many instances of the Cowboys losing a player that they wanted to keep. Right. Right. I think Marcus Ware would maybe be the best example. Um, and, and, and there was, that was somewhat financially motivated. Um, I don't think Jerry was a, an advocate of that. I think he got talked into it and obviously it was ba- It was a bad move on their part. um, but that would be the, the one example I could think of of them losing a player over money that they, at least some of them in the front office, wanted to keep, most notably Jerry.
3: Yeah, I know on your, on your podcast, Doomsday, along with uh, Matt Mosel, you guys had uh, Troy Aikman on. Yeah. The great number eight, the greatest of all time, Dallas Cowboys. I guess I'm a little partial to that. But uh, you talked to him about Jimmy Johnson. and I just want to get your thoughts on him being – uh, going into the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame, and if you had a Jimmy Johnson story that I think everyone has, would you like to share? <laughs> <laughs> I do
2: have a lot of Jimmy Johnson. stories. Um, yeah, Jimmy, uh, I think he's beyond deserving. Uh, obviously, didn't coach, you know, as long as many of us, you know, hoped he would, but I mean, he created a dynasty, and he, in, you know, inherited a one in fifteen team, uh, and was part of a a very dysfunctional organization Uh, you know, his partner didn't turn out to be as loyal as Jimmy expected him to be in, in Jimmy's opinion. Um, But what he did in Dallas uh, cannot be overstated. He's a great judge of, of players of, uh, in terms of, you know, drafting players, trading for players. He was willing to do unconventional things and he knew how to motivate players. I think as, as you know, he acquired great players uh, you're an example of that, uh, so I think he's beyond deserving. And the one thing that struck me about what Troy uh, pointed out, and Troy's been, you know, has been uh, chosen one of Jimmy's presenters. Uh, Terry Bradshaw is going to put the jacket on him, presuming that they have the the uh, the in, event in in Canton as scheduled. Um, and but Troy's going to be his presenter. And if you think about where that relationship was in 1989, there were, you would have never thought in a million years that Troy Aikman would have anything to do with Jimmy Johnson going into the Hall of Fame. Um, but obviously they were brought together. Uh, they were hugely successful. And Troy is deeply honored to, to be to be chosen to be Jimmy's presenter. Um, and, and as far as a Jimmy story, I think it's unfortunate, by the way, that he's not in the Ring of Honor before he's in the Hall of Fame. But Jerry Jones would argue, "Well, I'm in the Hall of Fame, and I'm not in the Ring of Honor either." <laughs> but it seems, like very, it seems like a very personal thing that you know has prevented him from being in the in the Hall of in the Ring of Honor, and he deserves to be there as well as he deserves to be in Canton. Um, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of a lot of funny stories about Jimmy. Uh, most of them uh, are him objecting to my aggressive style of reporting on the team.
3: Yeah, let's give us an example of that, because I mean, Jimmy never did that.
2: Well, well I, was here, I was here in 1989. <laughs> I came to da- the Dallas market for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram uh, to cover the Cowboys in the first season of Jimmy, Troy, and Jerry. And after, you know, so it was a bad year. There were 1-15. in 15, And so there were a lot of negative stories and a lot of negative reports and a lot of negative questions that, that people asked Jimmy. And not everybody, in his perception, bought in in the media. You know, not everybody was friendly. There were a lot of adversaries. While I later became a friend of his, I don't think I was one of his favorites at the time. Uh, And so I went away. I I left, took another job. A couple years I was gone. I came back in '92, just when it was about to get good. And they had a pick a ticket night. Okay, so now I've been hired by the Dallas Morning News. Covered him in 1989. Now I'm hired by the Dallas Morning News. 1992. They're having a pick a ticket night for season ticket holders at the stadium. You guys are having a practice there, and. Jimmy walks over to me, and and I think he's going to congratulate me and welcome me back. And he says to me, "So you're back, huh?" And I said, "Yes, sir." And he said, "Just don't piss me off." Turn and walk the <laughs> other direction. He also once before told me, he says right before they went, you guys went to the Super Bowl for the first time. He was upset about something I wrote, and he said to me, "I'm putting." He's getting ready to go run out the back door with his coaching staff. You know, he used to run the neighborhood, right. out. and and I knew he was mad at me. And so I put down my notebook in front of everyone. And I said, Jimmy, let's just talk this over off the record. No quotes, no story, no nothing. He says, sticks his finger in my chest. and He says, you have had your last interview with me. Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Ed, I think um, my last thing here is... Um... You, Troy talked about how honored he was to be chosen by Jimmy uh, on y'all's podcast and it was a great episode. I uh, certainly encourage everybody to go check out the Doomsday podcast, but I like to look at time in a in a unique way and I don't mean to make anybody, you know, myself included, feel old here or anything, but um, obviously Troy chose Norv Turner as his presenter when he went to the Hall of Fame. and I, I remember vividly when when Norv spoke because that was back when the presenters would give a speech there in Canton. Right. Um, he talked about uh, Troy's past Alvin Harper in the 92 NFC Championship game and how that was kind of this quintessential Troy Aikman moment. And so that was in 2006. So we were just as removed then in, in 06 from that moment, 14 years, as we are from Troy's enshrinement here in the year 2020. Like, where does the time go? You know what I mean?
2: It's it's amazing how fast it goes by. Um, and I mean, I, I I consider myself privileged to have come into this market and had the opportunities that I did at the two newspapers. And I don't think that, you know, without covering the Cowboys um, and and given how prominent they are and how great those teams were and all the personalities and all the unique stories that came out as a result of those personalities and winning um, that I ever would have had the opportunities in my career uh, to go into television and work at ESPN if it hadn't been uh, for having the platform that comes with covering the Cowboys. So, uh, I'm grateful for that. I acknowledge that in any part, and when whatever success I've had, uh, that has been sort of the most prominent feature in the whole thing. But yeah, it's just amazing to think how long ago it was. And oh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, am I'm gonna finish this if I can with one more Jimmy story. Oh, absolutely. Just, course. I course, came Storrs. to mind, in 1989 <laughs> after he played it after the Cowboys played their first game, uh, and they thought they were better than they were because they had come off this. Uh, They'd beaten the Oilers to win the Governor's Cup or whatever it was that Jerry created (laughs) (laughs) as part of the preseason. (laughs) So they were feeling really good about themselves. They go into New Orleans and they lose 28 to nothing. And I mean, the game was not that close. Like, it could have been 100 to nothing had the Saints wanted it to be 100 to nothing. The offense was historically feeble. They were bitterly disappointed and it pretended of a very long season ahead. And as they're walking off the field, Uh, to the locker room there's this guy standing over the entrance to the tunnel screaming at jimmy as jimmy's approaching hey jimmy jimmy doesn't look up at the guy hey jimmy jimmy doesn't look up at the guy hey jimmy finally jimmy looks up at the guy and the guy says it's a little harder to win when both teams are getting paid isn't it (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome that is
3: great that is a great story (laughs) Well, Ed, hey, we really appreciate you joining us today. I mean, great stuff as always. And um, stay safe, my brother. Uh, we need to get on the golf course soon because, as you know, I'll be off the shelf for a couple of months. But uh, always great stuff, man. Thanks you for are, joining you RJ and I. will heal
2: quickly and be better than ever, which causes me great concern <laughs> as we do our little gambling on the golf course. I but hope so. I hope you're right, my friend. Pay. Hope you're but, right. uh, I appreciate all the opportunities to uh, interact with you guys. Uh, Tony, all the opportunities to play golf. Uh, I'm sure you're very understated about the quality of your game. You're an excellent player. Uh, and you had one of your biggest wins ever on Sunday. Oh, uh, I did. Wow, you missed we'll that. You had a private affair.
3: That was pretty dramatic, by the way. Uh <laughs> I'll disembellish a little bit about it. But yeah, it was pretty I don't uh, think you have to embellish it. It, it. it was. Great. It is. And considering who the opponent was, boy, exactly. it happen at a better time or to a more deserving allure. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot, brother. Thanks, Appreciate it. Take care.